Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 32 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Troy Redstone, who's the founder of PhD Retirement Consulting, based in Overland Park, Kansas, and the author of two books, Repurposement, Experiencing the Financial Freedom to Start Living on Purpose Today, and his newest book, 401k Architecture, Design a Retirement Plan that Serves Your Purpose and Your People, which he wrote during COVID. He's currently the president of the Retirement Advisor Council, and he's also served as the president and chair of the Employee Benefits Institute. In this episode, Troy and I discuss his latest book, why a company's corporate culture is a good indicator of whether they'll be a good client and committed to running a successful plan, how to optimize plan design by leveraging behavioral finance, how to cast vision for plan sponsors so they can aspire to better outcomes, why he's chosen to build a boutique firm that is solely focused on institutional retirement plans and not wealth management, and much more. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Troy Redstone, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Well, sure, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm actually really excited about this episode. I'm always excited about episodes, but the fact that you are a fellow author of two books, the first you wrote, I think, in 2019 called Repurposement. Experiencing the Financial Freedom to Start Living on Purpose Today. And then your most recent book, which came out a couple of months ago, I think in October, which is 401k Architecture, Design a Plan that Serves Your Purpose and Your People. And uh, I actually had a chance to read part of 401k Architecture. I thought you did actually an awesome job. Uh, Thank you. Um, and so really excited to kind of talk about that today. You were the founder of Peach. D Retirement Consulting, which has PhD as an acronym. So for listeners that may not know who you are, who your firm is, why don't you talk a little bit about what PhD is and what it represents and kind of the philosophy that you have when you're dealing with plans? Sure. Well, it is an acronym. PhD stands for Plan Health Design. So we believe that if you have a healthy plan, it should naturally produce healthy outcomes. When I was first getting into the business, I was just so sick of hearing about, you know, the three Fs, fund, feeds, and fiduciary. <laughs> it's it's just the idea that you know you could have fantastic funds and and I guess low fees, but if only half your people are, are participating, it's broken. You know, and there there's a whole lot of plans out there that probably ought to just be taken out back and put down. I mean, they're sick. The retirement rate's not high. People are not retiring well. So it it is based on this idea that you know what what does a healthy plan look like? What does a good plan look like? Well, it it actually helps people retire well as simplistic as that sounds, you know, you can have no more have, you know, bad fruit from a good, good tree than a good, good fruit from a bad tree. So it's kind of this idea that if it's healthy, it should naturally, naturally produce healthy outcomes. So we work really, really hard on, on, on just building healthy plans, but designing and building healthy plans. Yeah. And I, I think the connotation there, which is a good one, one and, and a similar philosophy that I've had throughout my career is that, you know, a lot of times, uh, especially as it relates to funds and investments, so much of those outcomes are outside of 
fiduciary's control and really taking the, the kind of approach around plan health, around plan design, around those decisions is just really focusing on the things you can control instead of the things that you can't control. One of the things you mentioned that I think is something that I wrote a lot about in my book, uh, my most recent book, The Fiduciary Formula, is really around plan design. And one of the things I had, I had talked about, I kind of quoted the Apostle Peter um, 2,000 years ago. He said that love covers a multitude of sins. And what I had said was that the savings rate when it comes to financial planning covers a multitude of you know financial sins. You can't invest your way out of a savings deficit. And you know, things like savings rates, if you design your plan in the right way, actually you can influence much more than you can what investment outcomes are going to look like. So um, it sounds like you take a similar philosophy. Well, we do. And and you were just talking about, you know, plan sponsors controlling what they can control. Uh, let me just tee off that a little bit. There's this this idea of of this empowering message if it's if it's you know, couched correctly and framed correctly, but we are always trying to communicate to employees. The thing that matters the least is the investments themselves, which they don't really have a lot of control over that. They're not going to sit in that boardroom and figure out which of these, you know, 30,000 mutual funds are we going to choose? It's already been decided for them. The trustees of the plan, perhaps if their advisors, a 338 fiduciary, that discretion was exercised before the, you know, they even entered the boardroom, but the investments are already chosen. That can feel like a disempowering type of a deal. Like that's out of my control. So we're, we're going overboard and communicating to employees the things that are in their control, like how much they save and, and, and whether or not they save. And even like when they start, the things that are in control are the things that make the biggest difference. And it's not even close. Like it's, it really all comes down to, you know, how much gas you put in the tank. Everybody wants to focus on the investments. And there's been a number of studies. I'm sure you're aware of them as well, uh, as well. Just the studies on, you know, which matters more, how much or where. And obviously when matters the most, probably like when you start, but a very close second is how much. And a very, very, very distant third is where. And so we're communicating that message to employees and trying to help them understand this is empowering. Like you're in, you're in direct control over the lever that actually makes the biggest difference if you pull it. And so that's hopefully a, an encouraging message. And, and I think we've borne that out really even in our results. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was interesting in the fiduciary formula, I cited a study Dimensional had done and uh, they just looked at what was really fascinating and scary at the same time was they, they had, had run projections around retirement outcomes for something like 10,000, you know, individuals and the time was, was absolutely critical. Someone starting at 25 versus 35 versus 45, every five to 10 years that they mm -hmm. ended, you know, their savings rates had to go up by something like five to 7% per year. So very quickly, you can start to see that, you know, it, it, it becomes untenable. And, and mm -hmm. you know, you think about plan health, in a lot of ways, getting people into plans getting them in early, getting them in at sufficient savings rates. It's kind of like, you know, being able to detect, call it cancer. In my book, I talk about my mom, was a, she's a almost a 50 year ovarian cancer survivor. But part of the reason that, you know, she kind of blew the odds out of the water was she was, you know, she, she, they found it very early and she was in her late twenties. And so the fact that her age helped her, 
And the fact that they detected it right at the very outset mm-hmm. meant that the treatment didn't necessarily have to be as aggressive as if they would have caught it if she was older or if they would have caught it at a later stage. And so I think to your point, getting access for people, but getting them in early and getting them in sufficiently, you know, can go a long way. You can, you can overcome bad fees and high fees and bad investments, not ideal, but that savings rate is really the kind of key driver there. Well, and it drives us towards more holistic consulting and more, I almost want to not use the term because it's being used so much by folks meaning really something different even than what I mean, but financial wellness, right? So you know that, you know, getting more people to participate and more people to save more money is the key. Going in front of a group of employees and telling them they need to save 1% more when they're up to their eyeballs in debt doesn't work real well either. And so it's very, it's a very holistic approach. The consulting is, it's fun. It's messy at times. It's not a blanket answer for everybody. You know, we'll tell some employees, because they, you know, they have that um, high deductible on their medical insurance. And so they have the HSA that really the wisest thing for them is to contribute up to the employee match on the 401k, not a penny more, max out the HSA. And then once you've maxed that out, come back and max out the uh, the 401k. And I don't sell 401ks, Josh. So it really does come down to what's in the best interest of plan participants, which I know we all are supposed to give lip service to. But we we really do tell some employees, don't put more money in the 401k. That's easy to do when we're working in most cases for a flat fee. So in most cases, we're not driven just by putting more money in the 401k, but it helps us to tell that one employee who's who's up to their eyeballs in debt, you know, you need to reduce those credit cards. You need to get a handle on your finances before you just overload the 401k. And we tell the other person, you know, wait, you've got an HSA, make sure you're maximizing that. So it's a message that we can give without conflicts of interest. So that's fun also. Yeah, absolutely. So I had mentioned, you know, you wrote your first book in 2019, Repurposement. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what was that book about? Why did you why did you write it? Well, sure. And, and you know, one thing to say, I guess, is we wrote one book pre-pandemic and one, one book post-pandemic, and the world has changed. But, but in a larger sense, um, I started writing a book back when we actually started the firm in 2013. I started writing a book then, and the original title it, it would have been pretty boring. Only people like you and I would have read it. But it was like how to how to you know make a retirement plan work, or how to build a healthy retirement plan. Nobody would have picked that up. But I started writing that book, and I realized pretty early on that I had two distinct messages. And the first message was going to be to the employees, and the second message was to the employer. And the first message to the employees was pretty simple. It kind of wrote itself. It's everything I've been teaching for years and years and years. I kind of cut my teeth in this industry doing retirement education. So I kind of came up working on the record keeper side, doing retirement education, coming in front of a group of employees and trying to convince them that their 401k was a big fat deal. And, hey, you were missing out on free money and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and so all those illustrations and stories and anecdotal evidence that we've just accumulated over the years, basically everything we teach employees, that book wrote itself. That was easy. But we came up with this title repurposement because somewhere in the process, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, considering what I do for you know, a living somewhere in the process, I started almost, I guess, lacking a vision for what retirement is. In other words, I, I'm in the retirement plan industry, but I started wondering if I even really believe in the idea of retirement. 
retire is this military term that literally means to fall back and do nothing. And I read a study back in 2012, I think it was, that talked about how the number one activity for most retirees, I mean, it just was a whole list of things that they were pulled on and you could you know check which one you spend time doing. And the one that everybody did or every, everybody spent a significant amount of time doing was watching TV. <laughs> so, I mean, Josh, our vision of retirement is about as inspiring as a lazy boy in a remote control. Like, why would you sacrifice? Why would you save for that kind of a future? So I really began to just lose faith in this idea of retirement, this idea that you work a long, hard time and you accumulate wealth and you accumulate experience and all this kind of stuff. And then when you're probably most valuable to the world, with resources and not just financial, but resources, time as well, you're most valuable to the world. And then you, you know, you kind of, we put you in the back pasture and, and you do nothing. That's just a weird concept to me. I don't know that I really agree with the idea. I like the idea more of repurposement, not retirement. Josh, I know we visited before and everyone knows your story, but I'm not trying to retell your story, but you know, without, putting words in your mouth, it sounds to me like you've been repurposed, like you worked a long, hard time and then decided at one point, I have the financial means to stop punching the clock to do something that I don't find as much meaning in. I'd like to go and chase something that really is more meaningful and gives me purpose. And so this idea of repurposement is it's life giving. It's this idea that you can be financially able as soon as you sense what your purpose and calling is financially able to pivot and chase the thing that really gives you purpose. So it's, it's, it's fun for us to kind of think about how we hopefully are helping people first steward and eliminate debt and get a handle of their money, build wealth for the future, but also with a purpose in mind. So that's repurposement. No, I, I, I love that philosophy and, and that idea. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the author, Patrick Lincioni. Uh, oh, sure. Like five dysfunctions yeah. of a team and, and five temptations of the CEO. He's written a bunch of books. I've ever seen one of them on my bookshelf right now. But he writes these leadership fables, um, just a phenomenal kind of corporate strategist. And he actually has a, a new concept out. In fact, I actually took, I'm, I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's incredibly powerful. Um, I found a podcast of his and it was called Working Genius. And there was a there was an episode about he said it, it was called You Should Retire Now. And I was like, okay, what what is this all about? And I listened to it. This idea that he's come up with with working genius is that there's essentially six types of working, what he calls working genius. Um, and it, it's the the acronym is called Widget. The genius of wonder, the genius of uh, innovation, the genius of discernment. The genius of galvanizing, the genius of I forget what the uh, what the third one was, the next to last one was, and the genius of tenacity. So I forget what the uh, forget what the E was. Maybe it'll come back to me. But the idea is that everybody has up to two types of working genius. They have two that they're not good at at all, and they have two where they're kind of capable, but they're not real, real genius. And, and his idea with this, you should retire now was figure out your work genius, because when you do, it gives life to you. And it doesn't feel like a, when you're working in your area of genius, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like play. Mm-hmm. And it really, they have a whole assessment. I took it to kind of figure out what my two kind of working geniuses are. 
but it really gave me kind of like what you're talking about with repurposement. It, it, it actually helped me kind of embrace the way that I'm wired and this idea that, you know, people think that wealth buys you stuff and it certainly does up to a point, but just filling your life with stuff, mm -hmm. uh, it's like a drug, right? right. You know, early on, you don't need a lot in order to kind of like get the high, but you know, the more you use, you know, the, the, the shorter and shorter, you know, those, those adrenaline hits are, and you need, you need more. And I think what, what, what wealth buys you is it buys you freedom and it buys you time. And to your point, you know, I just look at history. I was a history major in college, you know, retirement is a new, right. It's a new concept within the last call it hundred years. Like before that you had folks, like you said, that were in kind of the primes of their life, like people worked their whole life. They had utility. And I just love the quote that you said, which I'm going to put in the show notes of, you know, the vision we have for retirement is a lazy boy and a remote. And um, this idea of repurposement that you wrote about is, is really recasting that vision of hopefully, you know, through healthy plans mm -hmm. and good outcomes, right? Bearing good fruit within your plan is something you talk about uh, a lot for employers is that that puts people in a position where they then can kind of, in a life-giving way, have the financial freedom to kind of offer their gifts, you know, to the world and pursuing things that really give life to them. And, and I, I've actually read a number of studies where you've got people who, when you just sit on the couch and you watch TV, like that impacts your life expectancy. It impacts mm -hmm. your engagement Absolutely. mentally. And I know you're a big behavioral finance and research guy. So what, what's your thought from that perspective? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you, we write repurposement. Repurposement comes out. Lots of different employees are grabbing hold of it. It's doing pretty well. People are reading it and such. And then the world falls apart with pandemic, right? Here's what's interesting about what happened over the last, you know, let's say 18 months or almost two years. It sounded like fun at first sitting at home, doing nothing, binging on Netflix, that got old really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And 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 as you know, a lot of people began really struggling with mental health. And I think that there's this intertwined with this idea of purpose, not just happiness, but purpose is this idea that I, I believe we were created to create. Like we need to have this sense of what are we doing that's purposeful and productive and everything like that. And there's all kinds of studies that show that those who retire early sometimes don't live as long because they found so much purpose in what they were actually doing. So now it's kind of like, you know, you talk to some folks who are retired and they're kind of like, oh, I'm not even sure. Is it Tuesday? What day of the week is it? And I mean, maybe the only day that seems different than the others is Sunday. If they go to church, every day is the same. You know, they're 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 kind of unmoored and it's um, untethered and it's a, it's not a good thing. So I, I think it's really important to be tied to something that we find meaning and find purpose in. There's a story, I'm sure you've heard it as well as a history buff, but something that, that happened in Nazi Germany, sometimes in concentration camps, they would have some of these folks, in addition to just the security of the place and such, they would break their will and it would really reduce the amount of people even trying to escape because they would have them every morning get up early and start digging holes. And then as the day was waning, they would begin to refill in the holes. And so it's not just that it was hard labor, but it was meaningless labor. It wasn't digging a hole because there was a latrine or something that was going to serve some purpose. They would dig a hole, fill it in, 
dig a hole, fill it in, dig a hole, fill it in. So many days you do that. And then after a while, it's like everything's meaningless, right? And so it moves in. And that's what I think we dealt with over the last 18 months. There's so many people struggling with mental health. And, and so I think it's, I think it's challenging. Some retirees, unfortunately, are not a lot different than folks I've known who are, you know, younger, should be gainfully employed, but they're, but they were laid off. They lost their job. That's a whole challenging kind of a deal as well, because you find your identity in what you do. And now if you're unemployed, you're, really struggling which is kind of trying to hold it together <laughs> so but there's retirees that are like that they're supposed to be in their golden years the happy years now they're not they weren't fired they retired on their own why aren't they happier i think it's important to try to connect meaning and purpose to what we're actually doing so yeah, yeah. absolutely you know i know for myself kind of what i i went through leaving greenspring you know it's interesting it's interesting that you 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 bring that up is that so much of our identity is tied up in what we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we do isn't actually who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think you're seeing some of the impact of that with the great resignation, right? You're having people. Uh, and quite frankly, I went through that, like through COVID is I started to ask myself, like, okay, like what, what's the second half of life? Gonna mm-hmm. look like? mm-hmm. um, could it look different? Do I want it to look different? And so, you know, I, I, uh, I just love this this idea that you came up with with repurposement, and like you said, the audience was really more of you know individuals, employees from that perspective. And then the I'm sorry, that's where you were going as well. And then the second book, really, you know, slightly because of the pandemic, I guess there was some downtime, <laughs> so the ability to pick up the second half of what I'd been working on, but. You know, it's really awesome that it worked out the way it did, because if I had written this second book, what I now call the second book, if I'd written that years ago, it would have been a different book. So I wrote it during this worldwide pandemic. And I and what I did, Josh, was I started contacting employers that are known for being great places to work. And so they always show up on these lists of places that people love working. And so I, I reached out to some of those employers and I said, what are you doing? Like, how are you holding it together? What's going on with your employee benefits? And and there were so many inspiring stories. And it's really the first section of the book as to all of these employers, business owners, business leaders who were who were loving on their people and 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 really just kind of giving a little bit extra, even during a difficult time which I think endears so much allegiance to the team and employee. I mean, we're, everyone's hiring, right? So everyone's going through this challenge of trying to find people and you offer things like 401ks to attract and retain and whatever, but employees are not generally leaving because they can make a dollar more an hour across the street. They're leaving because of things like culture. They're leaving because of things like maybe the benefits. And so it was inspiring to me to talk to these business leaders all over the country, some of whom were clients, but some of whom were not. They were just folks that we ran across that were listed as top employers. And we began asking them how they're managing all of this. And, and pretty much to a person, they were kind of saying, you know, it's not a it's not like, you know, we sacrifice profits for, you know, purpose or whatever. But really, we, we're trying to balance things out to where, you know, we want to design our benefits and serve our people with a sense that serves our purpose and our profits. Like it's not one or the other. Yeah. And um, it's not a binary either or. It's a both and end. It, it, it really is. And so the second book, which is 
in simplistic fashion, the first the first book is for employees. The second book is for employers. The first book is how to make your money work, and the second book is how to build a plan that helps your employees make their money work. You know, but I thought actually your and not to cut you off, I really liked that about about your book. Um, it's a really good read. I think you, you're a good writer. You're gifted with kind of concepts and like the you know you used a lot of this with this kind of 401k architecture. You use kind of this. Um, kind of construction methodology as it kind of carried through. But I do think one of the, you know, cool aspects of the book is, you know, in journalism, they talk about like, don't bury the lead, right? The fact that, and I know that, that, that originally, I think you had those stories in the back. And I did. Ultimately moved them to the front. Well, my editors, uh, did, the publisher did. Yeah. Well, they were they, smarter they, than I was. They, they made it, they, you know, they repurposed, right? The, uh, the structure. Of, they did. Of the book, but I actually thought that was a really cool way to kind of set the stage, you know, and so, so often it's about casting the right vision. And I think that's what you did with that book and with those stories. And I agree with you, you know, it, it much like in just the plan space was that you found out through, if you were an employer through COVID and the pandemic, you found out whether or not you had a good retirement plan advisor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. But I also think that through COVID and the pandemic, you found out as an employee whether you had a good employer, right? Mm-hmm. That really, uh, really cared about about you, and 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 just like a retirement plan, right? If you think about PhD, right, is you design a really good retirement plan. You know, ultimately, there are things out of your control, right? You mm-hmm. have to create the right environment with your plan. And kind of prepare the soil so that, you know, a good crop will grow from it. I think you do the same thing with culture as employers. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you know, ultimately, there are things out of your control, but you create the environment. And so I, I think those stories were really a, kind of an enjoyable read. And as I read them, I was like, oh, that would be a company that I would, that's inspiring. I'd want to work for that company. Exactly. Right. So no. you just like cold call, like obviously you had some of them were your clients, some of them weren't. Did you just like pick up the phone and be like, hey, I'm writing this book. I read you were on a top, you know, 30 employers list or whatever. And uh, I just love to interview your CEO and find out like what makes your company tick. Yep. I did. No, absolutely. How do I say this? It was an interesting. Did you get any, client, did you get any clients from these companies that were in your book? I've gotten one so far. Okay. All right. There you go. A couple of them solid were pros- solid prospecting. Maybe not the the the, the primary goal. But it's 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 the long it's game. Product. Josh, Josh, it's the long game. Like, I love it. Uh, yeah, I would I would encourage anyone who wants to like you know find some four hundred one k prospects to, to to interview and write a whole book and then two years later close the deal. Right? It's a, no, it's a long process. Right. So that's not why you start writing it. And I certainly had to make the point. You know, so that we don't get in trouble with our friends at the SEC about testimonials or whatever. I had to make the point that that a lot of the folks I interviewed were not clients. So it was not clients giving testimonials about me. It was it was plan sponsors talking about their people, talking about their culture. And it was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, some of those places were like, you know, those would be fun places to work. What were so, some of the lessons you learned in interviewing these companies? Like, were there any key lessons, nuggets of wisdom? Like, what, what, as you heard these stories, what was most inspiring to you? You know, I was, I was motivated, I think, just by this idea that some of the things that they don't teach you in business school, like how you, how you care for and you love your people and things like that. 
I think those things carry a whole lot more merit and really help you further down the road. I mean, my undergraduate degrees were actually journalism. So I was I was a writer. I, I was a journalist uh, professionally. So journalism and behavioral psychology. So I didn't go through the normal business schools. But I don't imagine there's a lot of business schools that teach you about loving your people. I was I was pleasantly surprised. Maybe it's just that I talked to the right people, but I was pleasantly surprised by how seriously most of those business leaders take the stewardship of their people. To a person, several of them kind of spoke about this idea that they they really feel like a mantle of responsibility to steward. They're responsible mm. for these people. Yeah. They're responsible for their families. Like I was touched, I think, you know, because we've all had crummy bosses. I've had crummy bosses. And so it's nice to think about someone who really takes seriously, like leading the team. Mm. That shepherding thing. I don't know if that's normal. But at least for us, and it wasn't a large enough you know, population to draw any type of you know, large results, but at least for us, the experience was that, that those who have really great culture do take shepherding their people seriously. Maybe it's just the folks we talk to. Yeah. And you know, it, what's interesting is, is you kind of carry that forward, right? In many ways, even not even more related to their people and their culture, they, I think, those types of companies and the, that type of, you know, that, that leadership group really internalizes what it means to be a fiduciary, right? Which, you know, at its core is you're putting the interests of others before your own. You're serving others Absolutely. first. Now that, that they're probably not carrying over the, the, you know, they're not thinking about it in terms of ERISA or anything like that, but it is that, that, that fiduciary mindset, which probably then carries over to, you know, how they run their plans that they, they, if they're wired, like outside the plan in terms of how they govern and run their company and how they view their people and their responsibility to their people, mm-hmm. it would, you would suspect that that then it's not like they turn that switch off when they start to make decisions about, you know, their retirement plan or their other benefits. Well, the, the interesting thing is that you, you run across people who, who really care. That's always a good baseline place for, you know, starting the conversation, you run across people that really, really care, but they've, they've begun to accept broken as normal. Mm. So they say, you know, yeah, we've got a really great place here and da, da, da. And so we start talking about the 401k and maybe their 401k has like 69 or 70% participation. And, and, but they say, but you know, we're in manufacturing and some of those guys are, they're not making a ton. And so we're unique. And I've heard that a million times. We're, we're, they're unique. we're unique. You know, yeah. our, 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 our people are just we're not going to, re- yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. I was working with a, with a really large, you know, group one time that was, you know, a lot of folks that were really, really lowly paid, low paid. And, and they just thought, well, this is just kind of the norm. I mean, we're not, you know, we're, we can never really expect better results. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, there were some things we did with plan design, like automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, but it's more than just that. I mean, there's a lot of education involved as well to undergird that message, the communication around that to help people not opt out. You know, but we ended up having a really, really, we had thousands of people and automatically enrolled in this, in this facility where they didn't think it was necessarily possible. They probably were were shocked at how good the outcomes were. They were shocked. It was 
it was really beyond their expectation, which I, which probably takes me to the kind of people that we work really well with. I mean, we work really well with folks that really, really care. I'd like to think every employer cares, but we work really, we, we love working with companies where it's like a family owned company, maybe. And the owner's side and names on the side of the building and the people that work there are like family. I mean, just to give you an example, even if we're working for, uh, you know, a low fee or a, a flat fee and, and we've, we've renegotiated low costs for services and things like that. Still, if you've got a match and you go from like, you know, 59% participation to 97% participation, which is a normal story for us, it costs the employer more. So the employer is now putting more money in the plan because it's match. But I've got, I've got dozens of those types of clients that can't say enough good things about us because we're putting more money in the pockets of their employees and they love, they really they love them. In a lot of cases, they write, they, 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 you know, how often do you see plans where like employees aren't taking full advantage of the match? And they sure. Say, well, what do we do? Because like, we want them to, it's not like we, you get some employers who are like, oh, let's, yeah. You know, let, let's 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 uh, let's not do a true up because you know it's going to save it's going to save exactly. No, but I think a lot of companies, you know, they're like, look, we want people to take advantage. We just don't know how. I would go back to the fact too that you said that the new, like, just the normal. Like, I, I kind of would describe it as like an acute injury versus chronic pain. Right? If I break my arm, I've got this really acute pain, right? I go to the emergency room, they set my arm, they put it in the cast, like it addresses that issue. But chronic mm-hmm. pain is different. You know, chronic pain, a lot of times it, it, you know, you don't feel right, but you just don't. I mean, I experienced that when I left Greenspring, actually, I'd been running so hard for so long and I was under a, probably a lot more stress, a lot more fatigue um, physically than I was even aware. And it wasn't until I kind of unplugged and rehabilitated for a period of time because I had a pretty rough ride out of it. Just very, very amicable and, and still very good friends with, with my, you know, my former partners and, and, and coworkers, but it was hard for me emotionally. Um, I actually dealt with some real, I never had, I never, I always thought mental health was really more just kind of like suck it up. I just kind of grinded through it. That was probably more my, my athletic background. But mentally, it was a lot like I dealt with some mental health challenges coming out of Green Spring because so much of my identity and my status was tied up in that company. And it wasn't until I was able to get some space and some time that some of that stress, that fatigue, as it dissipated, and I was like, I feel better. And it's like I didn't know how much kind of chronic pain I was in. It just was my new normal. I'm like, well, this is just kind of what it's like, you know, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And it's funny that you mentioned that about employers. I think the other thing is, as an industry, I think a lot of cases we are enabled of that to employers. You know, they have a 69% or a 70% participation range, let's say. And as an industry, a lot of times we lack the courage to say to them, you can do better. Mm-hmm. We want to tell them, oh, it's, you know, it's okay. You, you're in manufacturing like that. that it's, it's, that's kind of normal as opposed to more of casting a better. I don't know if you found that. Well, but I think as an industry, a lot of times, because we're more concerned with like keeping clients and not rocking the boat, we're, we're unwilling to kind of confront and say, you know what, like you're here, you need to be better. And here, we're going to, we're going to show you the way 
to get better. Uh, right. Sense? It, you know, it, it does. And you, and you touched on something that, that was troubling me as I was writing the book. And I don't know the final result of this yet. And that was how do you get people that don't care to start caring? Mm. I don't know. Do you think you can? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm hopeful. I guess my prayer is that the, the, the stories in the beginning of the book are inspiring. The roadmap through the book, 401k architecture shows that it's not that complicated. And, and if they realize, I mean, there, it's not all, it's not purely altruistic, right? I mean, if you're, first of all, if you're helping your employees retire on time, it's going to cost you less over time. You, You don't have, you don't have folks working beyond their most productive years. You don't have folks that are driving up your health insurance because they're still at the company and you wish they'd kind of retired already. It's going to help your company culture to reduce financial stress. So it's not purely altruistic. I mean, you're, you are helping your company by helping people to get on track financially. And I think those companies that we interviewed, for instance, that are really top performing companies that are not having the trouble filling open positions in this environment are the ones that take care of their people. Now, that being said, in most cases, we walk through the door and we're engaged with a, with a new client uh, in our consulting firm because they care. And so that's why we're probably talking to them. And so can you find someone who really doesn't give a rip and help them to start caring? I, I don't think I actually don't think you can. I don't know. Based on my experience over the years is that there's a there's a there was a court case, an ERISA ruling years ago. The judge actually wrote in the ruling the defendants were trying to make the case like, well, we had the best of intentions. And there's a, a really famous line from the ruling where the judge wrote, a full heart and an empty mind isn't enough, right? It's not enough to just, Teddy Roosevelt once said that, you know, knowing what's right doesn't mean much if you don't do what's right. So I do think it has to start with kind of that full heart. Like you have to be well-intentioned and well-meaning, but then you can't just kind of rely on that and say, well, we, we, you know, we wanted to do the right thing. You have to actually, you have to take that step. But I, I, you know, I've, I've kind of started to subscribe to this philosophy that you can't convince the unconvincible and you can't sell the unsellable. There's so many plans that are out there that if given the right vision, kind of the way that you, the approach that you take, that that do have the right desires, they just, they haven't been given the right amount of leadership yet. They haven't been sure. had a vision cast for them to really know how they can get well, how they can get healthy. There's so many of those plans out there, like advisors yeah. can spend their time. If you come across somebody that's not going to take your advice, that doesn't really, they don't really care. I hate to say that you should walk away, but you probably should walk away and spend your time finding the companies who that actually, care. That, that care and are willing to do the things necessary mm-hmm. to improve and to get better. I, I, I do know one of the folks that we interviewed talked about his journey going through like this process of of almost hitting a wall mm-hmm. and having to kind of you know regroup, and it was kind of this this huge aha moment for him, like this huge conversion experience or something. Like he, yeah. So it can happen. Hearts can change, but you can't do it for him. You, you, I can't. People have to. Well, they have to want it. You one of the make them want it. And one of the quotes from that particular person I'm thinking of that I wrote about was he said, you know, we were talking about how do those, how do purpose driven or, or conscious capitalism, how do those kind of companies 
ever become that. And he said, you know, the leader has to go on a journey first themselves, Mm. which is so true. I mean, you've got to either hit that wall or come to terms with, you know, who you are and what your purpose is. And not everybody's willing to go through that journey. It's a lot of hard work. I mean, I, like I said, I, it, it's funny as you, you know, and, and you and I talked ahead of time. And, you know, and the, the past nine months for me has been a real, it's been an incredibly life-giving. I would say like the first six months of, the, of 2021 were literally the worst six months of my life. The last six months have been some of the best. But that journey requires a lot of hard work. A, yeah. lot of, a lot of deep work. And, and, you know, if I'm honest, like there were times where like, I just wanted to throw the towel in, but if, if, if you really kind of lean in and trust the process, mm-hmm. it can lead to, to, to things you couldn't even envision yeah. before, but you have to get, you know, I, I once saw this also, this, this really good kind of um, visual and it was a, it was kind of a graph, right. Of about like change management, like, People start on a, you know, um, it's like working, like like working out as an example, right? We're getting to the end of the year. Gym memberships from and and Peloton memberships are probably going to go through the roof. People have these, you know, New Year's resolutions. You know, they're going to start working out the first week in January, and the first couple of times they're going to feel great and they're really fired up. And so you kind of like you get that that initial excitement, and then you like start to go down, and you go like in the, you know the valley of torture and a lot of people like give up and they say, you know what, I'm going back. It's not worth it. But if you yeah. kind of like lean into that and you can emerge through that, the arc starts to go back up and that's when you really start to see change. And, and Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you've gone through that journey because I think you're so much better for being on the other side of it. I, I hate that it was challenging the first six months. You know, I would, I would look back and say the last two years have been probably the most enjoyable and life-giving and, and purposeful of my, of my entire life. Um, Why do you think that is? You know, there's a number of reasons. I, first of all, even though, you know, we started our firm in 2013, so we're kind of a newer practice, so to speak, but I have zero debt, absolutely zero debt. So I've never, I've never struggled myself with financial wellness. And so, you know, yeah, we're going through this challenging time. Who knows in March or April of 2020, what's going to happen? I'm thinking, you know, I owe nobody anything. I mean, like it, being debt free, you experienced the pandemic differently. Yeah. Secondly, as we all know, the market recovered. That wasn't as widely reported in the news. Everybody knew what happened in March. Everybody forgot that by the end of the year, the market was back up over what it had been at in February. And, and so revenue is, is phenomenal we're growing at an incredibly aggressive clip. So 2020 was our best year ever. 2021 was even better. Now it's going to, I'm almost confident it's going to probably close out better than last year. So we're looking at ridiculous growth personally. I think probably maybe I'm just at a, I'm in a better place. I mean, you know, I've got, I've got amazing kids that are moving through college and, and that's, that's such a blessing and, you know, they're, they're healthy. And, and so just amazing things are happening with the family, with the business, being able to write has always been a passion of mine. So I actually was a journalist at one point and there's lots of articles that you could find at places like the Miami Herald and, you know, large newspapers. And, but that wasn't as life giving. And now I've transitioned to a different career and, but being able to come back and write about that was, was phenomenal, you know? So to me, I feel like I'm doing what I'm called to do. Mm. 
So this idea of that, that repurposement, right? Yeah, I think I you have this calling that is like deep within you. It's definitely a calling for me. And I feel like I have been repurposed and I can't imagine, I can't imagine wanting to not do what I do. Like maybe, you know, when I'm much, much, much older, maybe I want to travel less, but being able to talk to people about their money and being able to, being able to help employers make good decisions that are going to help their folks. I, I can't imagine not wanting to do that. I can't imagine wanting to retire from that. Yeah. So speaking of the book, you are a gifted writer as I, as I, well, um, thanks. you know, I, I think there are two differences that, you know, people confuse the idea of writers versus, versus authors, right? I okay. would say that what a writer is, is someone who is really kind of an artist with words. They're a wordsmith, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's novelists, right? It's, it's, it's really good journalists. I think authors are artists when it comes to creating and communicating ideas. Like I'm a decent writer. I think I'm a, you know, much, I would consider myself much more of an author than a writer. Given your backgrounds about as, as, you know, as a, as a journalist and being a journalism major, like I think when I read through most of your book, cause I didn't get through all of it, but as I read through most of it, I think you strike a really good balance of being a, a, a really good writer and a good author. And so one of the things I liked about just the, the and, and having like knowing how hard this is, is I really liked the, this metaphor, this kind of construction building type of metaphor, which ties into architecture in the title. Why don't you just, you know, as we, we kind of approach, you know, and start to wrap up a little bit, could you just maybe provide a synopsis of the book and mm-hmm. the full, you know, kind of the, 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 the metaphor and the philosophy? Well, sure. And, and it does definitely come back to a lot of design work. So, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an architect. I'm a 401k architect. I'm a 401k choice architect. I mean, there's choice architecture and there's lots of behavioral science that goes into how to properly design a plan. And I, I kind of feel like what I did was kind of lay a roadmap. Somebody else was saying to me, do you really want to lay a roadmap out there for exactly how to build a plan? Cause you know, you're helping your competitors and I'm thinking, you know, maybe it comes back to my philosophy in life. I choose to have an abundance philosophy, not a, not a scarcity mentality. And so there's, if you have an abundant mentality, I can be incredibly, you know, happy for, for your success. It doesn't diminish my success. There, there are so many people out there that are doing this at a really, really high level. I mean, one of the, one of the greatest honors and most humbling things, I guess, really in my, in my career as I've been repurposed was first being selected to be a part of the retirement advisor council, which is like the top 401k advisors in our industry. But even more so, once I became a part of that, I was elected by my peers as the president of that organization. I've been serving as president for the last two years uh, of the retirement advisor council. My term ends at the end of this year. So, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that do this really, really well many probably a lot better than I am, but, but I, I have maybe a gift for putting it in words. I don't know if I'm able to help other people. I believe a rising tide hopes, you know, helps all boats or raises sure all boats. Our industry when more people. Sure. Right. Even though there's a lot of people that do it well, it's still such a small percentage of the industry at large. Yep. And there's, yeah. there's so much business that's actually out there. It's funny. I, I've often got people because people the same way with me, like most of the people who buy my book, both my books were their advisors. And, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times people are like, why would you even like, 
you're making your competitors better. And, and you know, I, I've always taken the philosophy the same way. It's like, you know what? Number one, maybe 1% of people, even if I give them my entire blueprint of everything that I do, are actually going to take it and replicate it. And for the right. 1% that actually does, I'm so happy because good I for them. good for them. And I hope it helps them succeed because if they succeed, it's going to impact more people. And I sense that's your, your philosophy as well. Well, sure. And, and I mean, we do, you know, we, we're having conversations with a, with a large multi-site facility in another state that the CFO there had never met me prior to reading the book for one K architecture. So there is some of that that's going on. We haven't closed that deal yet, but there is this idea. Um, I guess the hope and prayer is that is that complete random stranger CFOs from who knows where pick up the book, read it, contact me and say, hey, you're the kind of guy we want to work with. That could happen. I don't know that I would recommend writing a book as a as part of your prospecting strategy because it's a real long game, you know, and to your point, probably a lot of the people that that read 401k architecture will be other advisors. And and that's fine. I mean, if it helps, if it helps the industry, but we really do kind of lay out the roadmap. Like, you know, if you're building this, this, you know, to use the construction mentality, if you're building this thing, how do you lay the foundation? What's the very first step? What's the next step? What's the next step? You know, the very first step is one that probably a lot of folks don't understand. I had, I had a uh, conversation. I would almost call it an argument with an ERISA attorney and he was dead wrong. I, uh, you know, I said, what's the very first step that you, that a company has to do before setting up a plan? I mean, what's the very first thing? And he's like, well, you don't have a plan until you have a plan document. True. But there's something that comes before the plan document. And he says, well, you have a plan that you should have a plan document probably before you hire the record keeper. I said, there's something that comes before that. I said, who's going to hire that record keeper? He says, the company. I said, okay, so who at the company is going to be responsible? Who's going to carry that fiduciary label? Who's going to be personally liable for this? So the very first step is to set up a retirement plan committee, a fiduciary process, figure out who's going to be responsible for making these decisions. Okay, you're having a plan document for how to how the plan works. Who's going to decide whether that plan should allow loans or what, or things like that. You, you've got to figure out who's responsible. So the very first step, and it sounds so fundamental, the very first step is to set up a retirement plan committee. You'd be surprised by how many places I go into where I'm hired by the CFO or hired by the owner. And the very first thing we do is rebuild their retirement plan committee and put together a due diligence structure because they'd never had that in place. These are not small companies. There's a law no, firm, I agree. I, a, I, a law firm where you've got the partners, the managing partners, and and they were responsible in their once a year annual you know meeting for this huge fifty million dollar four hundred one k plan, and it was a very small agenda item on on their otherwise busy agenda. They didn't have a separate retirement plan committee, and of course they're lawyers, so they think they think they're so smart, but they really had overstepped the most simplistic of things, which is start by setting up this fiduciary structure. So that's what the book does. It just kind of shows you how to lay the foundation. It even gets into how to evaluate different record keepers and things like that. You know, there, there's um, probably some cognitive bias going on here because, uh, you know, I think our philosophies are very similar and actually, you know, the, the both books I've written as well, it's kind of the same thing as like where it's, it's more of like a, and I've always said that I think that that nonfiction is actually a lot easier to write than fiction. You know, with fiction, you have to create things that ideas that didn't exist. Whereas I think with nonfiction around like 
you know, there obviously is a creative element with what you did. Same with me. But in a lot of ways, I just kind of document what I call document your day. Like I just basically, okay, what were the step by step? You know, when I would go into a new plan, what was the step by step? What was the foundation? You know, once we had the foundation poured, what was like the framing for the first floor? Then what was the framing for the second floor? And then, you know, then we started to kind of close it up. And, and mm-hmm. you know, once it was closed up, then what would we do in terms of like on the inside and the finished work? And then you get to things like paint colors and and where a window, you know, where a, a bay window should go and stuff like that. But it starts right. with that foundation. If you don't have a good foundation, you know, you build your house on sand. When the yeah. sand comes, it's going to knock it down. You build your house on rock. I've heard that story too. And that, right? So... Right. And there's a lot and there's a lot of plants out there and they're not just small plants. There's a lot of plants out there that that are don't have an investment policy statement in place. Never even heard of an education policy statement or a disclosure policy statement. They really don't have a proper fiduciary structure for what they're actually doing. And 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 it blows my mind. Now, I I guess my bias is maybe that's because they're, you know, they hired their golf buddy. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of two plant Tonys and one truck chucks that are still in our business that are kind of stumbling around. And and we we specialize in only working with institutional plants. There's no private wealth management over here. It's it's our focus. We're very boutique. And, and focus very, very distinctly on on what we're called to do, which is 401ks and 403bs. So let me ask you this. So there's obviously a lot of talk within the industry around, and there's a big push right now, and I've been pretty vocal about it on LinkedIn. You know, there's this, this you've got all this PE money going into the industry. There's a ton of M&A activity. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I just read an article that was posted on LinkedIn the other day by uh, it was re reshared by uh, I think Eric Daly from Multnomah group. Uh, it was, it was, there's now uh, it talked about, I think there are three SPACs that have been created now that want to buy up RIAs and this whole idea of accessing the scale. You need to access the public markets. And I made a comment where I said, I cannot think of a worse ownership, ownership structure of a fiduciary focused RIA than being publicly traded and now having to make decisions about the business and about their clients based on next quarter's numbers. Like what a what conflict a, of interest. What a disaster. Oh my word. You, you've heard a lot now, and there's certain corners of, of the marketplace that are saying there will be no standalone retirement plan boutique firms that you have to get into wealth. You have to cross sell. You have to do all these different things. Um, You've taken a different approach. (laughs) Let me get just opinion on that. And why do you think there is like, what would be your counter to that argument of that, you know, from a profitability standpoint and a survival standpoint, you have to cross sell and do other services or you won't be around. Well, you know, I cringe with this idea of trying to, quote unquote, monetize the plan participant. I like to serve the plan participant, but I hear that sometimes in certain circles. I understand that certain folks are going to chase the money. I can't necessarily even, I guess, begrudge them for for doing what they feel like is, you know, going to provide for their family and, you know, whatever. It's a big paycheck and and you go be you. But we've just never been there. And, and, and that's, I guess that's where I, I kind of fall into that, that sweet spot of purpose. Like I've never been that individual insurance salesman. I'm proud to say I've never sold insurance. I've never, I was never a stockbroker and we don't do private bulk management. And so 
I would tell every one of those folks that's in private wealth management that wants to bleed into our side of the business, just, you know, stay in your lane, bro. I mean, I, I like when they're separate and we actually have partnerships with a lot of individual advisors and there's a major RIA firm that, that we have actually a, like a formal engagement with out of the Southeast where they work with individuals all over the Southeast, multi-state region, and we're their 401k solution. So it's, it, it works for us to stay in our lane and, and not to bleed into private wealth management. I was formerly a partner at the largest, largest independent broker in the world. It's probably not a mystery who that is, but I'll let you guess. Largest independent broker in the world. And we were always told that, hey, you're leaving money and you're leaving free money on the table by not soliciting those individual participants for business. But it was just never our business model. Now, more recently, that largest independent broker that was so pure in their model did recently go down that path where they're actually going to cross sell and whatever. It'll be you. But it's just it's not what we're called to do. You know, I don't know. I, I'm very, I'm very content and at peace with kind of what we're doing. Are there more profitable ways of doing it? Maybe you, I guess you just have to figure out what you're called to do. Yeah. Really. But I certainly cringe with this idea of trying to monetize plan participants. Yeah. It's in yeah, our that industry. Story is, that story is, is being told more and more. And I, like I said, I do think the, the valuations and what we're seeing with the amount of money that's flowing in, my biggest concern is that it is, it's getting people to start taking their eye off the ball just because they, you know, especially after, you know, M&A. And I know this won't be popular because, you know, look, at the end of the day, like these are businesses that we've created over time and that like any business owner, like, you, you know, if there's a way to monetize your business, create value. And, and that makes sense for you. Like, I love it. This is America. I mean, that's what that's what I did. But that being said, when you look at the structure of some of these deals and the back ends, you know, ways to maximize deal value, but it's built on really aggressive revenue growth targets. I just worry that people are kind of starting to take, take their eye off the ball. And I'm of the opinion, just like you, like if you deliver value to your clients and everybody thinks they deliver value and some do, and probably some don't, but like if you, are delivering value consistently and you are staying very closely aligned with your clients and you're solving their problems. Mm-hmm. I think there's, you, you will always be, you will always have a viable business. Sure. Uh, that's, that's, I, I actually think there's, there's a lot of opportunity for, I'm not of the opinion boutique firms are going to go away. If anything, I actually think there could be a backlash against a lot of this cross selling and more and more employers, once they start to understand, you know, what the unintended consequences are, mm-hmm. will be looking for firms that that are, you know, kind of in their lane, if that makes sense. I well, I, you know, I hope so. I, I was one of those, and there's a lot of independent advisors, independent RIAs, like 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 we are, that was also in the same camp. But I was one of those that was welcoming of the fiduciary role. I mean, yeah. I visited with Phyllis Borzi about this, and and. You know, she she actually had like anecdotal evidence, I mean, with family members who had been kind of solicited by some advisors that that she felt like were overcharging them once they moved their money out of, you know, institutional plans. 
I think at the heart of it, she wasn't trying to attack our industry, but she was interested in kind of seeing people just stay in their lane. Like if you're an individual advisor, go go be a private wealth management guy and, and be the best. Do that. Don't play in this ERISA 401k world. And if you're going to specialize in 401ks, kind of stay in that lane. That was really what the fiduciary rule I thought was going to take us down. There was obviously a big you know pushback from the insurance industry and that kind of died. And I don't know if it'll be resurrected, but I was welcoming of something that gave some distinction to those in our industry. So yeah, I think maybe you and I are on the same page there. So definitely. Well, Troy, this has been a lot of fun. I will put in the show notes, I'm going to put links to your books. I would really encourage um, people to buy them. I think they, they, I haven't read repurposement, but I think 401k architecture, I think you did a really, really bang up job with it and uh, just really appreciate you know, your willingness to be generous of spirit, if you will, in terms of your ideas, your philosophies, um, the work you've done with the Retirement Advisor Council and, and the leadership from that perspective. One of the things I like to ask at the end of each episode is the whole purpose of this podcast is to help make ERISA fiduciary smarter. What is your single best piece of advice to someone who's an ERISA fiduciary, whether that's at a employer and they sit on a retirement committee, whether that's an advisor, whether that's part of the community, you know, that may not be fiduciaries, but kind of support the fiduciary community. What's your single best piece of advice? So you're saying like to plan sponsors or to advisors? Just, just if you, if you either serve in a fiduciary, let's talk about if you serve in a fiduciary capacity. Yeah, sir. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, if you're an employer, I, I guess I would take very seriously the idea of, of staying abreast of certain issues, you know, not taking whatever your record keeper tells you to be gospel truth. I mean, hopefully every plan sponsor out there is, is, is reading, you know, plan sponsor magazine. And hopefully you're at least somewhat versed in these different issues. Maybe you're educating yourself, you know, and I, I think that's probably true for, for folks that are in the consulting world. I mean, it never, that's, what's interesting about it to me is it never changes. Like there's so much going on. And so, you know, it never I've been, changes or it's always changing? Well, it's always changing. Uh, did I say it wrong? Yeah, I, I mean, thank you for correcting me. No, it it, it, it just, it, it's always changing. It, it just never gets old is probably what I meant to say. So, so yeah. If I could summarize that, it sounds like, you know, keep your eyes up towards the horizon and trust but verify. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Nice. Just bottom line that thing. So, right. Um, so where can people stay connected with you? If people want to reach out or they want to learn more about you or what you're doing or just connect, what's the best way? For you? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, pretty active on the socials. It's not always, it's not always me that's um, doing all the posting, but if it's a personal note, I mean, it's probably me that posted. So we're on LinkedIn. Um, the firm has a uh, location on LinkedIn as well as I do personally. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at repurposement. The website for the firm is feeonly41kadvisor.com. So feeonly41kadvisor.com. But the book, books themselves, so repurposement is the first one, and it's available. Repurposement's pretty easily available on Amazon. I think that's the easiest place to find that. And of course, you mentioned 401k architecture. So that's the one that just came out election day, actually, came out the first Tuesday in November. So. Yeah. I'll put links. I'll put links to all of that so people can find it. So okay. with that, Troy, thank you so much for being a guest. I really enjoyed the conversation and just really appreciate all the things that you're doing and, and just the way that you kind of 
not just see things, but the way you communicate those both in word and in, in, uh, in writing. Well, I, and I appreciate you having me and, and, and really appreciate what you're doing for the industry. I think it's fun to see you repurposed and really giving back to the industry in a role that probably serves the industry even more broadly and, and bigger than, than you were doing before, helping other advisors get better. Yeah, rising tide floats all boats. And so I, I, I've appreciated what you've done from afar. I appreciate you helping out with the second book. You've helped a little bit with that as well. So thank you. Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Troy Redstone from PhD Retirement Consulting. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. And while you're there, be sure to check out FiduciaryRx, my new tech platform that helps retirement plan advisors diagnose, prescribe, and improve fiduciary wellness, and also FiduciaryU, which is a new fiduciary training platform for advisors and their clients. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You podcast. Podcast.